This is episode 16 of the No Limits podcast. Welcome back. We are glad that you are here. Today's show is sponsored by Tangle Free Waterfowl. Their decoys and blinds and bags and other accessories are simply the most well-made products you can buy. You don't have to take my word for it. Cruise their website, read the reviews left by duck and goose hunters just like me and you. You know how we are. We may leave a positive comment if a piece of gear does what it's supposed to, but if it doesn't, good Lord, everyone is going to know about it. So um, read the reviews. There, There's also a clearance sale right now. Um, they're flocked malware decoys. They're skimmers and resters. If you haven't seen the flight series with the flocked heads, you need to check them out before they run out. We love these decoys, especially uh, late season when birds are in full plumage. Uh, we'll swap out and start running the flocked flight series, and it just adds that little extra touch of realism. And a lot of time with late season birds, uh, super spooky birds, that will be the difference in landing them in the decoys or watching them get out of the hole. Uh, their blue and snow goose slammer socks, I think, are half off. They're half price right now. We used a ton of those in Canada last year, and they worked great. Body stayed open even when the wind died down. Uh, they have the, the 2D, the two-dimensional heads, and since they're 50% off, you can afford to really beef up your spread. So check them out. Enter the promo code PASSION at checkout, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, and get free shipping on your entire order. We love Tangle Free. My guests today are Paul Kurtz and Mike Schwarzentruber from Hunter's Blend Coffee. Uh, you guys have seen the the coffee bag with the antlers on the on the on the front. This is not just ordinary coffee dropped into a bag with antlers on it to attract hunters to buy it. Hunter's Blend partners with organizations like the Sportsman's Alliance to help protect our hunting heritage and fight anti-hunting organizations, quasi-terrorist organizations like PETA in the Humane Society of the U.S. These groups have one goal and one goal only, and that is to chip away at our freedoms as gun owners, as hunters, and they do it a little bit at a time. And by the time we notice what's going on, the sport of hunting has either been radically transformed, if not totally vanished. Groups like the Sportsman's Alliance constantly watch for and fight against anti-hunting and Second Amendment, anti-Second Amendment legislation. They are what we call the tip of the spear, and they fight the battle where the battles need to be fought in the courtrooms. Um, they're, they're just watching for things that we cannot watch on our own. Uh, and it's, it's a great organization, uh, Sportsman's Alliance. Hunter's Blend has also changed the way coffee is sourced and brought to you, the consumer. There are so many things about that process that I did not know. So many middlemen that stood between the grower and the roaster. And those middlemen, many of them, are the very ones who support anti-gun and anti-hunting legislation. I bet you didn't know that, did you? I didn't. Why would you put money in the pockets of the very people who are fighting against our freedoms? It makes no sense. I've always said, know where your money is going. 
Mike and Paul have established a direct trade model with the farmers and established new ways of compensating those farmers and the impact on those communities. Uh, I'm telling you, it's been incredible. They're now seeing parents who can support their families. You know, the poverty was so bad under, and, and I had no idea that this was even a thing, but the poverty was so bad uh, because there were so many people, those middlemen in the process that had to add their 50 to 60 cents per pound. And the ones who were getting screwed were the farmers because they had to sell it at the price that they were offered. They had no other option. And so those middlemen would add their profits along the way. And it got it. The, the poverty was so bad. Many of the women were getting caught up in, in the sex trade. And so you don't see that anymore with a direct trade model. In fact, you see churches now that are self-sustaining towns now that are self-sustaining because rather than give and give again and give again, um, like charities do, and it's, it's not a bad thing, but now that they have changed the model of how they compensate farmers instead of compensating them all at, at one time at the harvest and then the farmers are broke again, they've actually established a, a method where they're compensating the farmers year-round, and guys like Mike and Paul uh, decided to change the status quo and do things differently. And that direct trade model is a different model. We had a fantastic discussion. It was really interesting. And I hope that after listening to the podcast, you'll be a little, a little more wise about where your money is going and maybe make a small change. Something as simple as where you buy your coffee has an impact in people's lives around the world. Again, it was just a great conversation. I hope you guys check out uh, huntersblendcoffee.com after the after the podcast. So here are my guests today, Paul Kurtz and Mike Schwarzentruber of Hunters Blend Coffee. All right, all right. Well, guys, welcome. I'm glad that y'all could jump on and join me. I'm really excited to learn more about what you guys are doing in the coffee world and, and the mission and the whole nine yards, everything that goes into it. Um, as I started doing more and more research into the process and just learning what a – it's just a super, super weird process. But I'm glad to have you guys on to talk about that. Thank you very much. Yep. We're glad to be here. You bet. Thank you. Yep. So we got Paul Kurtz, uh, Mike Schwarzentruber, both with uh, Hunter's Blend Coffee. Uh, why don't we start? Um, and whoever wants to go first, maybe uh, Paul, if you want to go first, just tell us a little bit about where you are and the and the business that you're in, and eventually we'll we'll work our way around to Hunter's Blend and 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 that whole uh, that whole brand. Yeah, I uh, this is Paul Kurtz. I own and operate Hemisphere Coffee Roasters, and since 2002. We've been importing and roasting coffee, uh, going directly to the farmers and importing it, uh, roasting it, and basically creating brands that the farmers themselves own. So the mission was really to put these isolated, I mean, 20 kilometers off of any kind of a road 
which is two hours from any kind of a city, which is four hours from the capital where you fly in. These are isolated farmers totally cut off from markets and creating avenues for them to, uh, you know, better their life and get better pricing for their coffee. Which is a totally different model than if you go buy something off the shelf, right? I mean, that's oh, that's my. a completely yeah. different. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're also talking coffee. 25 million farmers make their living from coffee and 94, 95% of them are commodity grade or commercial grade. So we're talking about five, 6% of the top quality coffee. So it really narrows it down to when you go to the store and buy coffee, it may be Arabica, which is a more mild, smoother coffee versus Robusta, uh, which is nasty. And, but that still doesn't quite say the whole story. The higher up the mountain, the sweeter, the harder, more denser the bean is, it's where the quality is. But it also is much more difficult to get off the mountain. So, And I'm a deer hunter, and I love... Uh, hunting and when I started seeing how the whole importing and the business side of green coffee is pretty much in control of the west coast cities like San Francisco Portland Seattle I don't know what comes to your mind but what I discovered was if these people have discretionary income they're probably supporting causes that are trying to shut our way of life down and our conservation, our heritage, and our hunting, and the Second Amendment. So uh, we, we just kind of like said, every man ought to know where his coffee comes from. Every woman, hunter, ought to be able to drink coffee that supports their way of life. So we put those two together. We're trying to help farmers, but we're also concerned about the future of hunting. Right, right. Now, Mike, explain um, how you got kind of roped into this whole thing, because you're your family, right? I mean, you guys are brothers-in-law. Uh, but explain kind of your role in Hunter's Blend and um, if there's a connection there with Hemisphere. Just how, how do you how do you get tied into this whole thing? Yeah, well, for, for better or for worse, we're kind of joined at the hip, I guess. <laughs> uh, there's there's another brother-in-law involved as well. Uh, that's Ken. And you remember he, the old uh, Newhart guy, Daryl, my other brother, Daryl? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. my brother-in-law, my other brother-in-law, yeah. My son George and my other yeah. son George. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yes, sir. So when I was around 13, uh, Ken married my oldest sister, Twyla, and he took me uh, trapping. I just, I loved it. Uh, kind of continued that through high school. About a year after he came into our family, Paul joined the family, married my other sister, another sister, Grace. And those two guys are avid lifetime hunters. And so even though I didn't continue hunting after high school, I, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, hear all the hunting stories. I just love staying in touch, reading, listening, learning. Um, so, you know, my wife and I have been drinking uh, Paul's coffee for years. You know, once once we got hooked on it, I tell people it's like if you've only bought tomatoes at the grocery store, and that's what it is a tomato to you. And then somebody hands you a garden fresh, vine ripened, sweet juice, I mean, running down your chin right you're like wait i went i don't even know what a tomato is this is yeah and that's how it was with the coffee so we've been drinking it for years and then when paul started the hunter's blend line here uh, a couple years ago he invited ken and i to jump on board because um seeing the opportunity to take something more nationally focused and then the time and effort 
you know, that it takes to try to make that happen uh, was something that he wanted to invite some help. So that's kind of how, how I came into the, the coffee side of things. Right. Now, we talked about the the model, right? And the model is different. Paul, if you can, so before before you started really working directly with the farmers, describe what that model looks like and how, I, I will even say almost corrupt, it, it is, um, and how unfair it is to the farmers that devote their lives and, and the, the farmers and their workers and the communities that they try and support. What did that model look like before Hemisphere and Hunter's Blend and before your idea of going direct to the farmer? Yeah. Well, typically there are five to seven intermediaries. So if you got this Juan Gomez out in the middle of nowhere He's got donkeys. He's got four or five donkeys or a couple of horses. He has no way of getting that coffee to some sort of a receiving place. So there's Jeep truck pickups that will come up and buy every day, buy the cherries. Because for within 24 to 36 hours after a cherry is picked, it needs to be depulped and and started drying in the sun. So the buyer with the pickup comes up and tells Juan, this is what I'm paying you. Juan can't say, oh, that's too cheap. I'll wait for the next buyer. There ain't any. And if there were, they call each other and say, what are we paying today? They stack the prices. So the farmer is really at the tail end of this whole chain of custody, you might say, of what happens to this coffee. So this buyer with the pickup sells to somebody who's putting together a whole dump truck load. That dump truck load sells to somebody that's putting a container together for a buyer. That buyer may be putting 12 containers together for a huge exporter who is putting 100 containers together to go to Germany. And everybody adds their 35, 50 cents a pound. So the farmer gets 80 cents and after six or seven buyers this coffee is now up around three or four dollars and it's here in the u.s and a broker will come to roasters like myself and say hey i've got wonderful nicaraguan coffee and i say who's the farmer and he would look at me and say that's a dumb question there's this is a blend of two thousand farms we, we don't know it's from the matagalpa area but there's three four thousand farms around here so there, it lost traceability. It lost quality. Uh, the Somebody was a loser, I mean, lost in order for the broker importer to win, you know. So by going directly to the farmer, making a deal with the farmer, paying him 2 to $3 a pound, plus I do all the importing, which is six to $7,000 container and brokerage fees and insurance, I still have about or a little bit less than what I would buy that same coffee from a broker in, in hand. But the farmer's seen two to three times more than he's ever could imagine. Yeah. Yeah. It's just yeah. a whole different model. So, but they're seeing more of that money, but they're not seeing it. If I'm understanding right, they're not seeing it all at once. I mean, you guys have worked out an agreement with the farmers that it's not feast or famine until harvest, right? I mean, right, you're actually right. helping sustain their lives throughout right. the rest of the year. Talk about that. Right. And that's a key because coffee comes in about a two, three month period. So 
on one limb will be blossoms that are haven't even set fruit yet and rotten fruit that have so the pickers will come through and pick just the red ones uh, so about a two, three month period, coffee's ripening, it's being depulped, it's being dried, it's being bagged. And then in March or April, boom, it's all shipped. The payments come to the farmer. He pays his bills, hopefully, of at the company store, you might say, mills that he bought boots and beans and rice and salt and sugar over the whole year. And he's happy if he's broke, if he, but even. He paid all his bills and he doesn't owe anybody. Um, what we began to learn is that in order to get a little breathing room, these farmers will go to a short-term finance bank thing in their town and make an agreement for a prepayment, but it's pay repaid at 30 to 35% interest, totally rips them off. So most farmers are working to, they've pre had some prepayments for almost all their coffee. So when they're actually harvesting and the weather's got to be good, they can't have any spoilage or damage, but they, they are working to pay back that short-term institution. So we started going to the farmers that were importing and saying, look, what if we pay you, advance you $30,000 for every container we buy? And from Diego last year, between me and a friend of mine, we imported four containers. So he got $30,000 per container. That keeps the 100 to 200 adults that live around the farm that depend on that farm for labor working year-round. They keep the plantation clean. They get the mill fixed, everything. There's all kinds of work to do and prep for the next harvest. And it's not a gift, of course. It's not a loan with interest. It's just early payment for coffee he's got to deliver. But it's not such a significant portion that if he does have some crop failure or can't deliver uh, all four containers, he at least isn't in the arrears to us. I, I've met coffee farmers. I wanted to work with them. I wanted to buy their coffee, but they were six years in the rears to this short-term predator loan institution. They owed their soul, you know. They couldn't sell any other way. Uh, so that pre-harvest payment that we make probably is the single biggest thing we did. I mean, at the time, it wasn't smarts that we figured it out. I was just trying to help the guy saying 35% interest. That's crazy. But that has been the game changer. That has kept the farmer, uh, you know, just life. It's just given him, it cracked the window open of hope to keep people working. And when a, employee, when a picker has a little discretionary income, you know, he'll go to a little kiosk and buy batteries, let's say, for his his little uh, jam box or something. He wants to listen to music while he's working. That little kiosk will take the money and he'll buy beans from a grocery. The grocer now will buy tires for his motorcycle. The motorcycle guy will buy meat from the butcher. The butcher will buy LP from the gas guy for his home. And that money just spins. And by working year round, this money is spinning all year round in the markets, in the community. And it, it, it literally changes the whole financial and sustainability picture of 
the region. Yeah, and it's, and, and it's just, just the amazing power of a job. It, it's amazing because we here in the states have no like concept of not having any type of discretionary yeah. income, and yeah. it's just. And, and so I know that in in some regions, in some areas, uh, there was a lot of the workers who were broke. I mean, they have no, a lot of the women have no no other source of taking care of their family other than in something like the sex trades or, yeah. or that. That's yeah. a, I had no idea that coffee impacted, had that big of an impact in that region. I mean, you think... Guy farms it, grows it, sells it, and he's got money. And then next year he farms it and grows. No, man, it's this really just—I mean—sketchy way of doing business that you guys have. Found. What was it that made you? Is it just you saw kind of what was going on? You're like, there's got to be a better way than paying these five or six, seven middlemen and watching them get rich for doing not—or not getting rich, but profiting for doing nothing. Yeah. Um, what was the event that you're like, you know what, we're going to try and do this a different way? Is it just you saw the economies and the people that had their hands in the process I mean, and you're like, no. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I know that as I think back, I was traveling in a lot of East African countries, Southeast Asian, Thailand, Laos, and in Central and South America. And that's where coffee's grown. So year after year, I was working for a church organization wasn't in coffee. I just would often, we'd be doing retreats with pastors and community leaders in a coffee, on a coffee farm or a retreat center out. They wanted to get, a lot of times in Central America, particularly, the cities are down in the valleys, blistering hot. So when they want to do retreat, they want to go up in the mountains. There's a retreat center and it's in the coffee zone. So here we're sitting year after year in beautiful coffee place. I'm drinking wonderful coffee. I know I paid $15 a pound at home, but these men and women are asking us for, would you have $200 that our women could go do a women's retreat or that our kids could have a water well here in the village? And we did, our organization did a lot of handouts. But I always say it's the opium of the people. You know, it's a drug. It's only as good as the next handout. And it doesn't foster creativity and something sustainable. It's, it fosters actually dependence. It destroys dignity. People don't want to grovel. They don't want to beg, but they don't know any other way. That's the way it worked last year, and I got a need, so I'm going to ask you again. And I started challenging them with, what if you were paid for your coffee? Well, I, I started studying coffee to figure out, and I discovered all these intermediaries. And if it's not corruption, like you introduced a while back, it's at least cartels that block anybody else from coming into this. There were years, years ago in Guatemala and in Costa Rica, it, way down among the Quebecer people in the south, where I was kind of fearful for getting a bullet in the back of my head because you knew you were messing with status quo. This is the way it's always been. And if you're a buyer coming in, trying to weasel in in our area. And so I kind of let the locals lead, you know, Hey, is it safe to go out? And they say, you know, let's wait till nightfall. We'll, we'll go out. And during the day, we'd kind of stay sequestered away. 
that's not a fun way to live. But I don't sense that so much anymore, except maybe in northern Guatemala. It's very, cartels run that stuff. But in northern Thailand, back to your point with coffee, there's 80 women that hand sort our coffee each year that we import. That's a full, it takes them eight months to hand sort that coffee. And so they're shipping way late in the summer because it takes, they don't have the equipment, machinery, but most of those women, I heard three quarters of them, were sex trafficked in Bangkok. And when they heard there was work up in their little Aka tribe village, they found their way home. And eight, nine years ago, it was a dusty, dry, depressing little village. Now you go there, and I realize now there was no women there. And, you know, women have a way of putting pretty things on the front porch, flower pots, and there's draperies, and the little houses. Now they look clean swept. There's flowers planted. You know, dirty old men. What are they? What are yeah, they dudes doing? don't yeah, worry just, about this. No, stuff. the dudes don't worry about <laughs> it. But I didn't put together there's no women around. But now you go, the women are working in little groups of 10, 12, sorting coffee. They're singing. Kids are running around. There's a little village school. There's a clinic. You know, the, they have a job and they're making money. And it's it's the power, it's the dignity of a job. And yeah. God made us in his image. And his image was a creator God, was a sustain. You produce more than you burn, right. than you consume. And that's the creating part. And when you give people a fighting chance, here I will buy your coffee. It's got to be good. You got to do these things. But if you do it, I'll reward you. And they buckle down and by George, they do it. They find ways to do it. And it's yeah. it's it's just exciting to be a part of. I say drink more coffee to it, guys. Yeah, absolutely. If you watch any of our episodes, I was telling Mike that the first time we talked. If you watch any of our Passionate Pursuit episodes, coffee is always a staple yeah. in every single one of them. Um, don't put anything in it. I want it just the way God intended it, hot, yeah. black, and right out of the thermos, please. <laughs> and one of the other things Mike and I talked about is Hunter's Blend. It's not just because a lot of guys might look at it and go, oh, yeah, they're using the, the stick of uh, put some antlers on it and make it. it it's a very different um, – it, it, the way that you – and, Mike, I want you to talk about the the a lot of the people that will source – coffee some of the buyers and the handlers and that are their 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 objectives aren't always aligned with ours from a hunting perspective you may have some that are antis you may have some that are super against second amendment and to paul's point what i have always said is you need to know where your money is going one of the things we talked about before when mike and i first spoke on the phone is when you donate to organizations right so um, if you're going to donate to someplace like Delta Waterfowl, or if you're going to donate to someone like Ducks Unlimited, or if you're going to donate to any of these organizations, find out where the money goes and are, are your interests being represented and being progressed by the money that you are donating or giving or spending. And a lot of times with the, you know, the, the far West coast, you know, how a lot of those guys feel about, about hunting and the second amendment. Um, but Hunter's blend is different. It's not just a bag with antler slapped on it. 
So, Mike, what I wanted you to talk about is your alliances with guys like Sportsman's Alliance, which I've known about for quite a while, um, the work that they do, and, and just how Hunter's Blend is different. It's not just a marketing stick, and I want you to talk about that. Well, yeah, like uh, Paul mentioned, a lot of the coffee is imported into places like Portland, Seattle, San Francisco. And when you're at some of the uh, the uh, coffee association meetings and you see some of the causes that the, the folks are behind, uh, if you imagine going to a typical coffee shop downtown in some major metropolitan area and uh, in your hunting gear and how you might feel slightly out of place, um, you know, the, the import, the coffee business industry just by itself is just a little, it's kind of its own thing. And so those importers would kind of tend to be along that same, uh, same vibe. And so if we don't know, if we don't know for sure where our coffee's coming from, there's a pretty good chance that it's coming through somebody that at best would be ambivalent to hunting. But if, if I was a betting guy, you know, better odds are that they probably are against it. And so, you know, years ago, uh, those of, you know, uh, us in the hunting industry figured out why do we pay high dollar for high end, uh, you know, outdoor alpine gear from a, a, a company that is not friendly to hunting. Let's have our own. And so we've gotten that now. And so, uh, with the coffee, um, by buying direct from the farmers, it's built in that it bypasses that kind of hidden underbelly of coffee. It's kind of like the part of the iceberg underneath the water line. None of us really sees or thinks about, but it's there. And so from the farmer um, to to your cup, the hand's been, well, coffee's been in one hand, and that's us. And then, and then the, you know, the, the end user. So we import, uh, roast, and, and sell it. So it's been hunter-friendly on the supply side, but then on the on the the, the side of things of uh, what do we actively support? Sportsman's Alliance. We do support different conservation hunting organizations, quite a few of them. But Sportsman's Alliance is um, kind of the the one. The, the, they're the tip of the spear, really, for all of us. Because if we lose our ability to hunt, habitat doesn't really matter. You know. Deer, you know, whitetail numbers, elk numbers, turkey numbers don't matter if we can't hunt them. I'm looking at Sportsman's Alliance website right now. And by the way, anybody that wants to look them up, it's Sportsman's, M-E-N-S, Alliance. Um, right now, well, so this time of the year is when a lot of policy gets introduced. They're monitoring over 500 uh, proposed pieces of legislation uh, in the U.S., and that would all have the potential to infringe on our freedoms and ability to hunt. I mean, it, it's mind-boggling. Now, they're not going to fight 500 cases in court. They're going to monitor them and try to get the word out, do grassroots, you know, uh, so people can get involved. Worst case, and they ha- it has to go to court. But their budget is a fraction of, for example, Humane Society USA, which, Humane, yeah, yeah, it's exactly. Because their their stated goal is to end hunting. Their former, I don't have the quote laying right here, their former uh, uh, president, that was his stated goal. And and that is their goal. Now, just so people understand, they are not part of the your local humane society that tries to help save dogs and cats. That the, In fact, Humane Society USA, that's the Sir McLaughlin ads on, on TV, you know, send in 30 bucks a month. Um, 
that less than 1% of that money ends up at your local Humane Society chapter. Most of their money goes to lawyers and lobbyists and lawsuits uh, against aimed directly against hunting. So like right now, what's been what's really popular this year, and it's going on in multiple states, is they're going, they're, and they're pretty smart. I mean, strategically, they're unfortunately very smart with how they do it. They, they don't go after, hey, we're going to end whitetail hunting. No, they know we'd be up in arms. So they go after, they nip at the edges to try to create cracks in, in hunting. So there's multiple states that have, and they, and if they, they come up with a boilerplate, uh, piece of legislation, uh, legislation that they try to propose, and then they'll just, they'll, they'll just reproduce that over different states. So the big one this year is, um, coyote, coyote hunting contests. So if you think about it, of all the hunters, how many, are active coyote hunters. It's a small per, number one, hunters are what? Six or seven percent of the population. Then coyote hunters are a small percent of that. Out of coyote hunters, how many people do the coyote hunting contests? So they're, they're nibbling away at a, at a niche hunting practice that they're counting on the elk hunter out in Montana or the, you know, the, the African game hunter or, or the grouse hunter or the, the pheasant hunter or the, or the, the person that just likes to fish. They're counting on all the rest of us to not care enough to get involved. And so it's just, it's just death by, death by, it's a frog in hot water is, is their model. And so, um, the, the, uh, the one in Nevada, if it would go through, the penalty would be equal to, uh, manslaughter. The, the penalty you would receive for participating in a coyote hunting contest would be the same penalty as if, uh, for manslaughter. Which is, by the way, which is, by the way, a lot more stiff than late term abortion. Just want to throw that in. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Oh. It, it, it is, it's mind boggling that you, it's a federal offense to, uh, destroy an eagle egg, isn't it? When, when you, when, in conjunction with your comment about abortion. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it, we're, we're with you 100%. So, um, that's, so, so I look, we look at, at Sportsman's Alliance. They're like, we all have this beautiful house that we call hunting, our freedom to hunt, Second Amendment. It's like this beautiful house and we forget there's a foundation under it. And those guys are going after just block by block down in the foundation to try to erode that. And what, um, Sportsman's Alliance does is they're down in the grit. They are down digging, uh, down in the muck. They're doing the, the grunt work so that we can all have this beautiful house. Um, and, and if we, like I said, if we lose that foundation, then all the other things are, are lost. We don't, it doesn't matter about, uh, you know, white tail numbers or whatever. So we're just, we are, you know, doing everything we can to, you know, obviously we're members. We support and partner with Sportsman's Alliance. And, uh, we just try to do everything we can, encourage people to, uh, it's, it's, just, you can do it for as little as 35 bucks a year. They're coming out with a monthly deal where you can just do whatever it is, 10 bucks a month. So that it's very easy to join and very easy to, to create support because, um, you know, if we don't support hunting, who will? And, um, I think that that 6% of Americans that are hunters, that brings up something else that I think we can all do without even spending a dime, and that is support each other. We have all these fractions within hunting. If you hunt with a gun or a bow, or then you use a primitive bow or a crossbow, and we, we start to segregate and start to stab each other in the back 
Um, you know, we've some of the posts you see online. If somebody, God forbid, shoots a deer behind a high fence, I don't have to like that. I don't have to want to do that. I don't have to. Maybe I don't have the money to. Okay, but if if it's legal, and if they are abiding by the local game laws, then we need to support each other because. If we stab each other in the back, Humane Society USA and PETA don't even have to get out of bed in the morning. We only have 6% of the population. We don't have to agree with what the next guy does or like it, but if it's legal and they're abiding by the game laws, let's at, let's stop stabbing each other in the back and doing the anti-hunters work for them. So that's something we can all do that doesn't cost a dime, but just think about what we're how we're communicating with people on social media or public or any other place. And if it's, again, if it's legal and they're following the, the le- local regulations, let's support each other. Yeah, because so much of that starts to look like the Hunger Games. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> everybody kind of eating their own. You know, everybody's wanting to stab everybody else in the face because, well, you don't do it the way I do it, so you're wrong. Um, I particularly don't like bow fishing in the marsh at night. Um, because I'm a fly fisherman. Um, I catch a lot of redfish on the fly. You can see behind me, I turn my own rods. I build my own flies. I do my own thing. I have caught several redfish that have these big gaping wounds across the back. And it's not a prop like every, no, it's not a propeller because a propeller will kill them. It's a bad shot from a bow fisherman. And your success rates with bow fishing you know, you can drive around and shoot every fish you see until you hit your limit. And most of the time you see the pictures of the guys, they've got ice chests full of redfish. Whereas if I'm going out with a rod and reel, we're on, we're on, we're on unequal ground and it's in their favor because I've got to fool them in a bite and I've got to get them on the line. I've got to, I've got to manage the slack and the tension and I've got to get them in the boat. Um, but that doesn't mean that I try and crucify bow fishermen. I don't do it. I don't like it. But it's legal. Um, the same thing, you know, when when someone shoots a spike and they it, it it's a trophy for them because that's their first deer. Well, who am I to say, you know, to to point fingers or look down my you know my crooked nose at, at somebody else because what they can what they perceive to be a trophy for them might not be for me or somebody else. And to your point, you're exactly correct. If we would stop trying to chew each other's face off to make a point for ourselves and look at the greater collective of the hunting community. There's enough people that are out there to shut us down. Like what you said, Mike, without giving them fuel, without giving them a gas can and matches. You know, one of the things that they did on the, the public refuge that I hunt in Mississippi, and this was years ago, is they didn't try and shut down hunting. They didn't try and limit the days that what they would do is they would limit access. So they limit where you can drive a four-wheeler or where you can drive. So we don't have to shut down hunting. We just have to make it impossible for you to get to. And that little refuge is literally that big in the complex of refuges across the country that no one paid any attention to it until it was too late and it was already done. And they're doing that same thing, like you said, just just nibbling at the edges. The, The frog in the hot water doesn't know that he's boiling until it's too late. And you, you can't go back and change that. Yeah, if we if we see, and uh, Sportsman's Alliance is real good at uh, just keeping everybody up to date of, of uh, what's happening, of bills they're, they're paying attention to. 
And so if it's something that we can have an effect on by talking to our uh, legislators, it doesn't matter if it's not something that we do ourselves. If it involves hunting, and if it's a nibbling away at our um, at our freedom to hunt, if we get involved, what we're going to do is we're, we're keeping that wolf at bay because I tell you what, next year or 10 years, it will be, you know, my beloved whitetail uh, or, or my, you know, beloved elk or turkey or whatever it is that is there. It will come incrementally to your door. So we can, you know, even if we think it doesn't matter to us, all of these things do, do matter to us. And so, uh, they're, they're not, they're not, they they don't deal in fact. They deal with emotion. Mm-hmm. I've I've heard it said the long oh, yeah. the, the bigger the eyeball and the longer the eyelash, the more the you know. So if you think about you know the the wolves and grizzlies and and whatever, I mean it, they don't fight based on science. We all know that sportsmen pay for, you know. I've I've heard it's, it's hard to keep to know precisely, but give or we take, are the uh, conservationists. We are. Period. Yeah, we are the Earth Day heroes. That's right. That's <laughs> so, you know, learning about how much money, I, th- I think it's around a billion a year through the, the uh, uh, Robertson-Pittman Act and, um, you know, taxes and uh, pur- purchases of, of uh, outdoor equipment and uh, 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 license fees and things like that, that we're contributing to conservation that that have, have returned all these numbers to our wildlife because of conservation. Um, we're paying the bill. So the more we can learn about those things and have a, have a civilized conversation, maybe with a neighbor who doesn't, I don't like trophy hunting. Well, okay, that's interesting. Well, what is, can you tell me what trophy, what does trophy hunting mean to you? Well, they go out and they cut their antlers off and leave them away. Well, actually, you know what? That's number one. That's illegal. But I don't know one hunter that does that because we always harvest the meat. And sometimes there's some antlers attached that we're going to save as well to remember the hunt. But we respect the animal. Everything is harvested. It's illegal to leave it lay. And, oh, really? Yeah. Or, you know, trophy, you know, Cecil the lion. Well, did you realize that that huge bull elephant that got shot over that was was destroying all these people's food and so they asked for help uh, and you know a wealthy person came in through their game laws hunted that elephant that was however many thousand pounds of meat that fed all the local villages for you know i read a story of a of a hippo that had killed a young boy and the the guy that shot the hippo the, the boy's mother just was overcome with thanks for the, the the man the hunter that took the, the the hippo out it fed how many villages and put thousands of it puts thousands tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of dollars into the wildlife conservation in Africa to allow them to fight the poaching without hunting there's no money to fight the poachers and then all the elephants go away all the rhinos go away so we're actually paying the bill for the very thing that the people are afraid that we're going to destroy. So the more we can have a civilized, I've had conversations with different people. Oh, they don't nearly all go well, but there's, there's a percentage that always the person will say, I, I didn't know that or wow, that's really, and they don't all necessarily want to go out hunting themselves, but now they've, 
they've become educated. But what Humane Society USA and PETA and all them depend on is emotion. They're not talking science. They're only stirring up emotion. No, because you can't win that argument with science and data and facts. You, you're having an emotional argument to um, an issue that is driven by facts and data. Correct. Yeah. And those those two things that goes into just liberalism in general. It it is a it's an it's a class warfare. Let's get everybody to start chewing everybody's face off, and our argument is going to be based on emotion or what we think not on what the data tells us to do. And and that's why I think it's so important if you're going to really you really need to follow the money that you spend either if it's donating to wetland conservation organizations find out if for every dollar that I spend how many more ducks come down the flyway. How many yeah. more ducks hatch in the prairie pothole region? Oh none. Oh, okay. Well, then why am I giving you money? Is it so I can just have a sticker on the back of my truck Damn. and say I belong to this group? Because if that's your argument, then be honest and say that's your argument. That I mean, that's that's fine. That's your. It, I think it's stupid, but you know, that's that's your argument. You need to figure out and find out where is your money going. And uh, I tell you, the more I looked into how you guys have kind of remodeled how you you source your coffee and how you have relationships with the farmers and the impact. And and Paul, I want you to talk about the impact from a from a faith perspective and the impact in those organizations where you've seen churches spring up and just have you know an incredible impact with with the communities around them that would have that that would not happen under the old model i mean if these people are just happy to be broke and breaking even there's no way that that happens on the kind of scale that's happening now right no that's true um if i could just i'll answer that impact question one of the things that kept bringing through my mind as Mike was talking is the fact that I say it sometimes this way, coffee makes the hunting world go around. We consume, hunt as hunters, outdoors people, we consume a lot of coffee. I'm one, I will, if I'm rifle hunting on a whitetail stand, I'm drinking coffee on the, on the stand. I don't when I'm bow hunting. But what's neat about your audience, Joey, uh, with the waterfowl, you know, the nose is not an issue. You're sitting in a blind. Probably a lot of guys take coffee to the blind. Uh, I did some Yeah, there's something wrong with them morning. if they don't. Yeah. So, you know, the first guy up in the morning put the coffee on. But That's me. Pe people, you know, choose their their shotgun shells, their the shotgun they use, the, the blind, the camo pattern with care. And then whatever the wife brings home from the supermarket, they're drinking. And so we're, we're also, Mike and Ken and I are trying to promote coffee as part of our gear. It's, it's essential. We, it's, it's important to us. But the impact is it, 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 it's continually, as you dig into it, and I've shared a lot about the economic impact, but the more you dig, actually, the better it gets. In Nicaragua... I just was speaking to the son-in-law of the main farmer that I work with. They're now looking at 40 church. They've now planted 40 churches, all with a discretionary income from the coffee that we've bought over the years. And his model, Diego, will go up to a, a, a picker. A, a, usually men, there's a few women who were pastoring, were leading churches, and because there was no money, they had to get into the workforce. 
And he goes to him and says, uh, I want you to go plant a church in El Tuma. And they're like, but Diego, I need the money. I got to work. I'd love to. And he said, no, I'll pay you this next year what you would make working in coffee. You got one year. If you can get 10 to 12 adults that are tithing, you can live at the level of your congregation. And it has not failed. It probably may not work here in the States like that, but it's not failed. The pastor in a community is almost the judge, the jury, the arbitrator. He settles disputes, and he, he's a community leader. And so when he goes into a little town that's just you know, running wild with, with adultery and with drinking and with, you know, just kind of no bar what they're doing. And Mm -hmm. he sets up a place of righteousness here. Here's what the word of God says. And there's a, begins to be a trickle down event. People come to faith. They start being faithful to their wife. They bring their money home instead of buying liquor with the quarters and little change they've got suddenly there's a gospel lift that comes to that community and in all 40 of these communities they can track kids in school clothing medical fresh water all because the community kind of took care of itself based Mm -hmm. on in the center of the village is this church that was not there and that's just happened over the past six seven years in Thailand, the Pat, the guy that we work with, and I'm going to give him a link to this. I want him to listen in. But uh, he's of a hill tribe. It's called the Aka. There's seven hill tribes that are in the South China, Burma, Laos, Northern Thailand, that whole golden triangle where it was opium and, and poppy was grown there. And the king introduced about 20, 30 years ago a program where you pull out your op, uh, opium plant coffee, I'll, we'll give you the plants. And so a lot of farmers, these hill tribes, they did that. But they're tea drinkers, and they really didn't understand the value of the coffee. I had one little four-foot-eight Akka <laughs> grandmother with no teeth mm. from chewing beetle nut and opium stuff. She just, there was a fog in her eyes, but she mm. said when... When I grew opium, helicopters came and bought. Now we grow coffee and nobody comes. And it's just, you know, sad. But but they are trying to carve out a, a more respectful living. And Pat, mm-hmm. the farmer that has organized 25 farmers into a little co-op called a Bonzo, his goal, and he's a Christian leader, he's got, and these are very animist Buddhist villages, and he's and the Aka tribe is kind of spread out over these three or four nations, and they consider each other kind of cousins. So he's taken little forays into Burma, into South China, into Laos, and trying to get other of his tribesmen interested in growing really good coffee and making that available for us to get a hold of. Logistics are going to be incredible to get it out of there. Right. But that's exciting. It's kind of the front edge we're working at is seeing these economic bridges, really the bridges of relationships to bring Jesus to these villages. Praise the Lord, man. And and that's kind of uh, a strategic move, kind of apart from Hunter's Blend. But, but when somebody says, 
why should I buy a hunter's blend? You know, I get, it's like I'm standing in front of a fire hydrant. I got all these thoughts. I believe in my mission. I believe so much in what we're doing. I just want to get more coffee out of these places. I want to have a suction yeah. over here of, of need because right now the, the demand, we need more demand. Right. We've got supply potential like crazy. Yeah. I feel like it's so much easier to see the impact in those places. I mean, we in the United States don't lack, we, we lack for nothing really. I mean, when you, when you think about it, so you have people walking around that, uh, you know, it's a lot of times you couldn't even tell if there was a church in the neighborhood. Um, and like you said, there's such a, you can step back and see the impact of Jesus in these communities because there's nothing else to, I mean, there, there, there's nothing else distracting them. I mean, they're concerned with living one day to the next, and there's there's no hope in that. And when you can look at a, at a community like you were talking about where there's, there's drugs and there's crime and, there, you know, the fan, just everyone is just kind of out for themselves, and you, you turn that to where it's people trying to help other people, it's it, it's you, it, it's as clear as the nose on your face, whereas we would have a hard time seeing that in the United States because there's a program for everything. There's There seems to be just about a handout for everything, um, and it's going to get even worse. I mean, the good news is it's going just like the book said it was going to go. <laughs> I mean, that that's the, that's the good news is for... <laughs> for guys like us, for believers, we know the end of the story. And so where everyone's kind of wringing their hands and, oh, it's just getting terrible. And that, I mean, it's actually, it's good news because it's happened just the way the book said it was going to happen. And if you have your faith in anything other than Jesus of Nazareth, you're, you're going to be, you're, you're, it, it, yeah, it does look bleak and it does look hopeless. Uh, but to see communities like that turn around is just, I Joey, think that was the uh, most amazing yeah. part of that story. Yeah. And Joey, uh, a lot of communities that like USAID and World Bank and a lot of develop community development programs, they target the economic, the emotional, the psychological needs of people trying to somehow pull up the, by bootstrap. And we all, we all have those kind of needs, but there's one they always leave out. And that's the spiritual needs of people. And a lot of the groups, uh, areas that we're working are either Hindu or Buddhist or just nominal Catholic, Protestant or something. Just look and, and when people are so poor, uh, generation after generation poverty, there's a mindset that I recognize right away just from my work. And that's somehow God overlooked me or I don't matter to the gods or people of developed countries are, are, are special to God and I'm forgotten. But when you walk arm in arm with people, cause coffee does that. We don't grow coffee here in Louisiana or in Ohio. We need you. Well, right there is a statement they never heard before. You, you need me. And you grow something that's amazing. It's wonderful. And we'll reward you for that. That you have value. And suddenly, God has turned my way. And he's smiling on my community because of the good work we do. 
I mean, it's it's it heals these broken peace in the hearts of people when they realize through a very uh, practical way that God loves me. Yeah, yeah, and and, and I've always me, kind of so. Yeah. Yeah, I, I look at a lot of the missions, and look, I, I'm not I'm not anti mission when it comes to church. I, I mean, I think that everybody has a mission. Like, what's your mission with your neighbor across the street? Yeah. Right. I mean, um, but these missions, they go out and they'll do things. They'll build wells, or they'll build a school, or the, and it's all good work. But like you said, they're going to have some other similar need in yeah. another six to nine yeah. months, and yeah. so are we really helping? By now, the the ultimate help is bringing people to Christ. That 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 should be. Uh, look, I, I, after Katrina here, um, I, I fly a lot for work, and so I was in the airport, and there was this big group of you know school age, you know high school aged, you know people. I know exactly what it was. It was a mission group that was coming in to help, and I, so and this is right after I was I, I came to Christ very late in my life. Um, Religion did a number on me that, you know, it really, that's a whole nother dirty story. But um, I came to Christ relatively late, but I came to Christ when I was very bold to say what was on my mind. And I was older and, you know, really just didn't really care what a lot of people thought anymore. Um, And so the the first thing that I I asked him is, what, you know, what are you guys doing here? And I, I knew it was a mission trip to come help and rebuild houses and things like that. And I'm like, well, how many how many people accepted Christ on this trip? I mean, how productive, how much fruit did you produce, right? And they said, oh, oh no, we weren't doing that on this trip. We were just helping them build houses. And I'm like, well, well you left them in worse shape than they were in before, yeah. you know, spiritually. I mean, all you did was enable them to say, yeah, you know, I, I'm good. I got a roof over my head now. What what hope did you? give them. I mean, if that's your mission is to go dig a well or to put a roof on somebody's house or help somebody clean up their, 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 their house or their property after a natural disaster. I mean, that's, that's, that's great. But the the number one thing that you can give them is hope through Christ. Right. And they weren't. And so, well, that's it. That, that wasn't the purpose of our trip. That should be the only purpose of your trip. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, that just, um, but uh, that, so I look at, the, the missions you can go and do things and you haven't really you've you fixed um, a symptom of the problem but the, what the great thing about your model is you've changed the way that they conduct business to where now they're self-sufficient yeah. it's not a, it's not a handout every every year and right. I, I just think that's that's right. wonderful right. that's such a great thing one of the things I wanted to ask I was <laughs> here's something else I didn't know is the whole and Paul, I want you to take me through like the process of taking the beans and roasting them and grind because you are the coffee apostle, I saw, and to be labeled as a Q grade or a Q grader, is that right? Yeah, that's it. Um, I, I had no idea that that even exa- I mean, I just thought there were guys like, yeah, that's good. So we'll, you know, let's stamp that. That's good. And this one, hey, I don't know. That's not so good. Um, but talk about the roasting process, how it gets from, from the, the, the containers that you buy to the bag that's in my kitchen. And then I want to know more about this certification of being a certified, like we say in the South, a show enough greater. Yeah. Well, um, 
you know, in March or April, trucks back into our warehouse and we, it's in there like hay bales. It's just flat loaded in a container, 250 to 400, 150 pound bags. So we have to palletize it. We unload it, bring it in our warehouse. And over the next year, we're accessing that. I sell off to some other roasters, but most of it we're roasting. Um, we have two, there's kind of Ford and Chevy or John Deere and International, two different ideas to try to get to the same thing uh, in roasting. One is conduction, the other is convection or a drum versus an air roaster. An air roaster is very clean. It's just kind of, uh, we call it a profile. It just starts at ambient temperature and finishes at 450 straight up where with a drum roaster I have more control I can spike it at the beginning level it off and let it walk into my finished temperature it lets me let the coffee develop its flavor at different points in the drying and roasting sugars caramelizing and there's acids off going off and 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 other aroma things that it can change sort of the nature of the coffee where at the begin an early or if I drop it very light roast it's very acidic very citrusy bright and as it goes darker it turns chocolatier and smooth and earthy until it is charred and so different regions different coffee and qualities like I said before low-grown coffee will char off pretty quickly. It doesn't give much, uh, it's, it's not dense, it's soft. It doesn't give much flavor as it gets darker. But the high-grown coffee, uh, very, it's called SHG, strictly high-grown, is a real hard, dense bean. And there's a vigorous cracking that happens in the roasting, a lot like popcorn. Anyhow, so roasting is a phenomena that can be done real quick in six, seven minutes for 30 pounds or stretched out to 20 minutes. And so I'm always playing with coffee that I'm warehousing because as it sits there in the bag over the year, it kind of changes, it dries a little more, gets what I call baggy. And so I'm gonna change my roast profile, how long I roast, how degrees. So we're, we're constantly sample roasting. Hmm. So I just wanted to let your listeners know that roasting is part science, parts art. I mean, it's, it's really all science. It's just heat, time, temperature, but there's an artsy fartsy part of it where people kind of lick their finger and check the relative humidity of the day and what's going to happen today. It's kind of a wet, rainy day. We're going to have a little longer roast. There's right. some moisture and that kind of thing. Um, the the because coffee is very subjective you've we've coffee people years ago started developing a sort of objective quantitative set of protocols and standards of how you would evaluate coffee and so the cqi coffee quality institute began licensing certified cuppers who would evaluate coffee in 10 different areas on a scale one to 10. So there's body, there's acidity, there's aroma, there's fragrance, there's mouthfeel, just different. And then one is kind of subjective area. It's called overall 
uh, overall sense, I think is what it, we call it, or overall evaluation. So you might rate that high because you just love the people that grow it. But you, so the idea is to try to get somebody cupping in Indonesia and somebody cupping in Ohio, we come up within three quarters of a point of each other on this coffee. So if it's 86 and I scored as an 86, somebody else might say 85 and a half or 86 and a half. But we know we're talking mid-80s coffee. That's pretty good coffee. As it goes to 88, 89, those are rare. 90s, almost unheard of. There's 91, and I've heard of 92s. I sometimes think somebody just liked it pretty good. Right. Uh, but most coffee on the market is in the 70s. Starbucks starts around 78 that they import. Diego's coffee is is in 85, 86. Uh, and the Thai coffee that's in our Hunter's Blend, it's Nicaragua and Thai, that's around 86, 87. So we're talking a really high-scoring coffee uh, that's in the Hunter's Blend. The certified Q graders, there's about 400 active certified Q graders in the U.S. And I, I am one. I'm trying to keep it up. It's just a good... If I'm bringing in coffee, I go on the farms. I want to evaluate what I'm buying. I want to know uh, in kind of an objective way. Because a lot of farmers say, this is good coffee. Mm -hmm. First time I went to Thailand, the Pat said, we have really good coffee. Will you buy it? And I thought to myself, Thailand coffee? I never heard of it. And everybody says their coffee's good. So I said, hey, slow down, guy. We, we need to evaluate this. And make sure it's good. He said, well, it's good. Everybody says it's good. And when I arrived in the village, it was 10 o'clock at night and his front room of this hut was, there was 10,000 pounds of green coffee sitting there. It was just full. There's a little, little path through the middle of these bags of coffee and 25 people standing in this room off in the edges, like waiting on bated breath. Are you going to buy my coffee? So the first thing I knew I had to do, we have to, we have to evaluate. So we took a little trier, it's called, a little pointed thing you can stick into a burlap bag and pull out a little 30, mm -hmm. 40 gram sample. We took a five gallon bucket of 50, 60 of those bags, shook it all up, took it to a roaster, 11 o'clock at night, said, would you roast this? He roasted. The next morning we picked it up and we ground it up. There was four or five of these guys back that morning. Guy had hot water. I had a little Hario V60 pour over, made my cup of coffee, and, you know, I took that sip. And that's when I knew I was in the presence of greatness, you know. Here's farmers <laughs> that needed a market, and you got the heck of a coffee that has the potential to just turn this village upside down. And I remember I, I Skyped my wife. I said, honey, would you be open to refinancing our house and buying 10,000 pounds of Thai coffee? And she said the dreaded words that a guy like me does not want to hear. She yes. said, whatever you think, honey. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> You're supposed to call that one. <laughs> Right. But we did. We we bought it, and I wasn't sure how it was going to go. But it, it was awesome coffee. It still is, and we've been 
buying from him ever since. So, no, that's that's what's in uh, that and Diego's blend is in his coffee is what's in your Hunter's blend. Exactly. Right? Yep. What are the what talk about those two those two lines? Because I um, I like something with a pretty good caffeine kick. And I thought for years, well, the the dark blends have got to be the strongest, and they've got to yeah, not yeah. not so much, not so much. I, yeah, my understanding is uh, a lot of that gets cooked out when yeah. You're unfortunately, in the there there's two cracks. We always talk about a crack uh, at, uh, and I'm not talking about plumber's butt here. I'm talking about right. <laughs> uh, at about 400 degrees is a is a crack, and then at about 440 445 degrees is another crack. In between there is when a lot of caffeine is off-gassing, and it, it just kind of dissipates. And so if you catch an early roast in that first crack, you've got pretty high caffeine. Even though the flavor is more delicate, more blossomy, citrusy, you know, it, it would seem like it's wimpy coffee. It certainly is millennial coffee. <laughs> Uh, the Roger lumberjacks, <laughs> the lumberjacks that have never cut wood in their life, uh, love it. Right, but, but they the, wear flannel. Uh, yeah, they wear flannel. Got the boots and the beard. Got the little beanie and the yeah, <laughs> yeah. Are we making fun? Yeah. But yes, we the, are. The dark roast coffee that has more earthy bite to it really mm-hmm. has less caffeine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so you've got the the lighter our, blend, which yeah. I, I really, really. That, and that, it's probably not fair to call it light because it really is the dark side of medium. Yeah, but yeah, but it's uh, definitely we, lighter than the black yeah, powder. Yeah, yeah, the black powder. We just had a number of people say we want something really, really dark. We just in the last week even went another level dark uh, on really? it. Really? Yeah, we're just taking it to. I'm trying to find the line between when you crack the bean open, it's powdery, or there's still cellular. Uh, essence to it that will brew and you won't be tasting charcoal mm. well the uh the, the the original blend is the one that i've just wrapped my arms around yeah yeah that cranks my tractor in the morning dude i'm yeah. telling you yeah that's just such good stuff mike talk about some of the other things that are available um as we kind of get towards the the time where we're going to wrap up talk about some of the other things that are available on the website um, I'm going to put all of the your your contact information, your Instagram, uh, you know, identifiers and websites and everything. But talk about what what our users are going to find when they go to huntersblend.com. Sure. Well, we have the of course the original roast, uh, like Paul said, it's kind of the dark side of medium, and then the black powder dark roast. And uh, we do, like you mentioned, get a few requests for something even a little darker. So. Um, that's the, the mad scientist's job there to do a little bit more on that experimenting. And we also have the, the, uh, pods, uh, the K cups, um, working on long term. We'd like to find, uh, something that is convenient for backpacking, uh, single serve, uh, uh you know, that's, a, that's something that's, that is, we're, uh, it would be, it on, would on be, it would be brewed a lot like cowboy coffee. So mm-hmm. fine that you would boil your water, dump it in, and maybe put a little splash of cold water or just let it sit a little bit and those grounds settle down. There's a silt that'll settle down, almost soluble. Mm. Or if you had French press coffee, it would be a little bit 
but you basically our motto would be you got water. People that are backpacking, they've got a jet boil, they've got water, they're making mountain house meals, and so all you need is water. You got coffee. Mm. Yeah, you know the mountain house meals. I mean, you can eat first class. I went on an elk trip a few years ago, and and uh, you know full full disclosure, it was a number of years premature in my <laughs> hunting uh, <laughs> yeah, progress. I've been archery hunting uh, for uh, whitetail here in Ohio for maybe seven years now. So that was a few years ago, and and I was actually probably the most qualified of the three that were out there. So. That kind of tells you we had a good time. It was right. a good uh, horseback camping trip, and <laughs> uh, there you go. But it was good. It, we actually called in a, a bull one morning and got to see him run off. So, but yeah. But uh, but you know, you're out there eating the mountain house meals that are just phenomenal. You know, you can be out and eat a top notch meal, then you're stuck with just some really awful coffee. You know, instant or something. And so uh, we'd like to provide quality coffee i mean that the last morning we were out there uh the, the whoever brought the coffee wasn't counting on enough and so we it was so thin by the last morning it was barely even tea and i still liked it you know at nine thousand feet it still tastes really good yeah so can you imagine what really good coffee tastes like so that's what we wanted you know that's 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 uh that's on the on the horizon um but uh, of course, we got the uh, you know T-shirts and mugs, and mm-hmm. the, got a cool. We, a lot of people really like the the mug. It's a double walled stainless mug. I do. You get the yeah, you get the benefit of it keeping the things hot, but it won't. You know, you can take it to camp or whatever, or drop it on your floor at home, and it's not gonna not gonna break. And uh, T-shirts and stuff. We're, we are uh, working on a, a new T-shirt right now that seems to be people really uh, excited about. Uh, it's the uh, tagline. I like my um, coffee black and my tea in the harbor. So <laughs> in, in time for July 4th. So we're, we're getting that finalized. But that's we had a little had a couple designs that we uh, published on our uh, social media outlets and just let people kind of let us know what they like. So, yeah. Uh, uh, but, yeah, that's uh, do we I think we still have we have a pour over a little pour yeah. over. Um, it's a unique well. it's a unique unit you can do it chemic style or hario v60 and you can google either one of those and find out what they are but it brews into a 24 ounce thermal container so you've got your glass funnel on top you drip into it screw that off screw the lid on and it's an insulated lid and that sucker will stay warm in your truck for four or five hours problem is i've got it done in six seven miles down the road i go through yeah. but it's a nice way to take coffee to your tree to your stand to your blind yeah i i like that that concept of being able to make a good cup of coffee wherever you are because like when we travel to hunt if we're in the rv and we got to travel to kansas or we're driving someplace and that just to me is like super super convenient really convenient We've got a referral program that people can sign up for and basically earn uh, credit towards free coffee and beer uh, just for making uh, referrals. Or they, they you know, they get a, a link that they can share. It comes through their portal, so they get credited for sending people to our website. 
we always are looking for retail outlets, so yeah. any hunting store, butcher shop, grocery store uh, that that's interested. We have wholesale uh, pricing that we're always looking for uh, for more outlets. Um, hey, Mike. Also, if if any gun shops or distributor, you know, retail joints are listening, uh, Xander's is a large uh, shooting and outdoors distributor that maybe some of your listeners are members of they stock it you can order it get you know free shipping if you're ordering guns or ammo for your store but you can come you know dial direct or email us directly and we'll get you set up yeah because i noticed you got the big what's that the big five pound bags too we do yeah 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 that's what i'm gonna need come hunting season (laughs) that's what i'm gonna need the um I just I, I love your concept. I, I love how you guys are wired spiritually. I love how you guys are wired to um, making sure that the money goes to number one those who really need it, and keeping it out of the hands of those who would seek to end what we have have come to know as our heritage and our absolute right as Americans, um, either it be Second Amendment or the right to hunt. I love how you guys keep the money out of the hands of the people that would seek to end that. Um, it's just an amazing story and an amazing concept. I, I really do hope that after people stop, after people listen to the podcast, you take a couple seconds, go to the website, watch the documentary. That's what oh, that's what truly opened my eyes. Um, the documentary that you guys have on the website is truly, truly amazing. So we've been honored, really, recently to be asked to join uh, Governor Mike Huckabee on his show, TBN, the Saturday night and Sunday night. So I was interviewed. It's not, it's going to come out in June, uh, but I was able to talk a little bit about everything we talked about here for five or six minutes and it'll be national. I wasn't able to talk a lot about Hunter's Blend, but we're hoping to in the future beyond talking about Hunter's Blend with the governor. That's great. That'll be great for you guys. Yeah, yeah. What did we, uh, is there anything you guys want to cover that we missed? Mike, is there something you want to jump in with? Yeah, I was just going to underline something that was covered a a little bit earlier, um, and that is due to the fact that this is in the top 6% of coffee. um, You know, I could go to Kmart and buy an off-direct set of arrows for one price, or I could go buy a a high-quality set of arrows from the hunting store and it's cost two or three times as much as what's the deal i can buy the same arrow that came out for a quarter of the price no i can't it's a different arrow mm-hmm. um so the your what you're paying for with hunter's blend coffee is a high quality uh coffee that it takes that there's less of it even available because there's it's there's only so much coffee that's growing uh, at that quality, and then the farmers have to go through their processes to do that. You, you're not paying more because it's got a set of deer antlers. I mean, I know you can go to the hunting, you can go to the farm store and buy a mineral block for X price, or I could take that same exact mineral block, put a different wrapper on it, and sell it for three times the price, and call it deer, you know, deer antler growth. Mm-hmm. This is you're just paying for a high quality coffee. And, and you're not paying more for to quote give a handout to the farmers because we're not we're because it's a different model. There's none of the middlemen, so you're actually getting what you pay for. 
it's not cheap coffee. It's really good coffee. Yeah, and, I mean, you, uh, look, I, I will spend twelve to fourteen, fifteen dollars a pound on coffee because I don't. Look, that's why I don't drink instant coffee. It tastes like crap. Mm-hmm. Um, I would rather spend more, and I'm gonna like I was gonna say, I'm gonna spend it anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I'm going to buy good coffee, so why not buy it? And, and you got a subscription now on your on your website where I can sign up, and you just get it at you know every two weeks or whatever you choose, right? Right. Um, yep. So I don't even yep. have to think about it; it just shows up. Yep. And you're not talking; you're, you're talking about uh, look, I'm going to buy it anyway. So mm-hmm. why not buy it from some place that has your best interest in mind and also helps change the lives of the people that actually produce the product that you love? Yep. Hey, Joey, I think yeah. you get it. You get it. I appreciate you uh, setting us up to share Amazing, story. isn't it? You've, you've got it, man. Man, I don't know a lot, but I know a little about a lot. <laughs> and so, no, but that's, um, I have uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And um, I, I would love to get you guys on again soon. I'd love to, you know, off the air talk about ways that we can work together. If there's ways that, that we can help you with what we're doing. Um, definitely want to talk about the two, but but thank you guys so much for for joining us, man. That was thank you, Joey. It was for a, that us. hour and fourteen minutes and twenty four seconds went by really, really fast. Thanks a lot, Joey. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, you bet, guys. Thank you, Paul and Mike. That was a great conversation, and I don't feel as dumb now. If you can imagine that. No, I feel like I know a lot more now about how the choices I make. Uh, those choices, how they impact people that I will never, ever know. And I know a lot more now than I did before we started. So you guys, please go to huntersblendcoffee.com. Check them out. It's a, it's a great site. Try either their traditional or their black powder roast. One's a kind of a medium roast. The other is a, is a dark, robust roast. They have decaf too, but why in the world would you drink that? Um, it's really, really good coffee and you'll also help fight the antis as well as change the lives of farmers and families uh in in south america and where that you know where your coffee is produced also don't forget to go to tanglefree.com and enter the promo code passion at checkout p-a-s-s-i-o-n and get free shipping on your entire order and finally please please subscribe to the show it means a lot to see how quickly the show has climbed in the charts and we know that that only happens because of you guys who follow and subscribe and we appreciate all of you we really do thank you uh so that's it until next week's show bye bye y'all